Revelation chapter 1. What I'd like to do this morning for the next few moments is to draw our attention to a little phrase in the midst. Jesus is seen in the midst of varying circumstances. In my thoughts, as we come together on Sunday mornings, in my imagination, I try to picture as if Jesus were sitting in some visible place in our congregation. And so that what we say, what we do, how we conduct ourselves must be in keeping with that. Because as we began that even where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. If you believe Jesus is here in our midst this morning, could I hear an amen? Good. Revelation chapter 1, and we'll take a moment. We're not in a hurry. It's not a race. Chapter 1 and verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's the unveiling, the revealing of the person of Jesus, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed, there are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Here is one. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, or the sevenfold Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth and to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him at his revelation. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. Going back to Zechariah 12 and verse 10, as the tribulation is brought to a conclusion. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come. And here Jesus is called the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia." unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned 
to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, notice those words, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He wasn't doing some funny little movements in the aisle. He fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Here he gives us an outline of the entire 22 chapters here in Revelation. Write the things which thou hast seen. That's his first point. The things which you have seen. And the things which are the church. The letters to the seven churches. And the things which shall be hereafter. After the churches. After chapter 3, there's no mention made of the church until we get to the end of the book. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels, the messengers, perhaps the pastors of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. I'd like to take that little phrase in the midst and look at it as God used that and breathed that through the Apostle John. But before we do, let's take a moment and ask God to guide us. Our Father, we believe that we have your word before us. We have just read words that were God-breathed through the Apostle John. And therefore, help us to take them seriously to treat them with the greatest of respect and reverence. And may your truth, as we consider it, impact our lives in a special and personal and yet collective manner. And when we are all finished this morning, may it be evident that we have been in the presence of the Lord Jesus. May his presence perfume our conversations, our attitudes, govern our relationships, our responses to good and not so good, pleasant and unpleasant things in life. We thank you for the privilege that we have this morning to come into the presence of the very one who loved us and who embraced the cross for us, who conquered death, who has provided us with eternal life and a hope that is certain for all the ages of eternity. Help us to understand what this little phrase means and what its implications are. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation is a fascinating book. 
One gentleman that I spoke to several years ago said to me, I don't ever read the book of Revelation. I don't study the book of Revelation. He said, I can't understand it, so I don't read it. Hmm. Is that going to help? I think reading it might be a, a good first step to understanding it. Is it confusing? Well, it is certainly a little different than other writings from the Apostle John, but it was written to be understood. It was written for our learning, our profit, for our daily practice as we go through our earthly journey. Just 22 chapters, 404 verses, revealing to us something of the person of the Lord Jesus. It is true, it has got a lot of his program with regard to the future, but all of that is secondary to the wonder and the greatness of his person. It is, as verse 1 says, the revelation of Jesus. Revelation, this book, presents Jesus to us as the Lamb of God, a Lamb that was slain, but alive again. But it also presents to us Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It shows us him as the Savior, as the sacrifice for sin, but it also demonstrates him as our sovereign, our absolute master, and one who will rule through the ages of eternity, and with him we will rule and reign as well. When we consider the book of Revelation, it, it presents all of the major fundamental Bible doctrines. It presents to us Jesus in his deity, the very fact that he is God, that he is the firstborn of the church demonstrates in chapter 3 and verse 14 that he is the Amen. And the Amen is no one less than Jehovah God, going back into Isaiah 65, 16. There in that same verse, in chapter 3 and verse 14, he's called the faithful and true witness. And Jeremiah 42, 5 tells us that it is Jehovah God who is the faithful and true witness. He's also called in that same verse the beginning of the creation of God the source, the origin, the active cause of all creation. Everything that has ever been created has been done through the hands and through the mind, the power of the Lord Jesus. He demonstrates, John demonstrates the deity of Christ. He talks about salvation. Just go over to chapter 5 in Revelation just for a moment. Verses 9 and 10 Speaking of now the church having been raptured, caught up into heaven, they're not sitting around on clouds eating Philadelphia cream cheese. They're busy. It says, and they sung a new song. So they're singing in heaven. And what are they singing? They're not singing, happy am I. And I'm not criticizing that. That's great to be happy. But what are they singing in heaven? They've got substance that transcends the individual. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. The reason? For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. What an amazing statement. What a great subject matter to sing about as they were singing unto the Lord himself. Four times the book of Revelation talks about God the Holy Spirit. We also find that he talks about sin 
That's a major theme in the book. He talks very definitely about judgment, lots of judgment, especially in chapter 19, as all the armies of the world come together against Jerusalem and they are destroyed. Sometimes I've, I've tried to wonder, picture, what, what will that be like? All the armies of the world coming together to destroy for one final great battle and wipe out Israel and wipe them off the map. The Bible tells us that God at that point will intervene. We know from going back into Ezekiel 38 and 39 that the armies of the world will be destroyed and the blood will flow to the horses' bridles from a little south of Jerusalem all the way 60 miles up into Megiddo. That's a lot of blood. I can't imagine how that would happen, but it will. It is declared to be so. Then in chapter 20, he draws our attention to the millennial kingdom and the wonders of what that will be like. And then the great white throne judgment in verses 11 through 15. Then he brings us right into the eternal state. So the book of Revelation embraces all of the major doctrines and puts them together in one book. Sometimes it is said of Revelation that it is the most theological of all the books in the, old, in the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament together. I don't know that that's really true, but it at least leaves some with that impression. And it is certainly very intense in revealing what God has said in the rest of Scripture and putting it together in one package. John, as he wrote this, was an old man, probably around 90 years of age. And he was in exile on the island of Patmos. He didn't die there, but he didn't know that at this point. Secular history tells us that he was working in a salt mine. Now, that would be a hard job for a 20-year-old, much less a 90-year-old. On the Lord's Day, he was in the Spirit. We know that from verse 10. He wasn't sleeping in. He wasn't saying, look, I'm an old man. I've been working hard for the last six days. I need my rest. I need to sleep in. He got up, and he was in the Spirit. He was controlled by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, God has given us the entire book of Revelation. How important it is to be governed by the Spirit of God, to be enveloped by him directly. Now, John actually refers to this little phrase, in the midst, several different times. I'd like you to go back in your Bible, just for a moment, just to get a little of the background, to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John, chapter 19. Now, that little phrase, in the midst, is used in three different connotations. First of all, Jesus, from our consideration this morning, first of all, he is seen in the midst of sinners. And we see that in chapter 19, And you might look at verse 18, where they crucified him and two other with him, either side one, and Jesus in the midst. He was there between two sinners, two people who desperately needed to be saved, two people who were going to die imminently and die very horrible deaths. And here in this little verse, Jesus in the midst, we find him 
willing to be in the midst and willing to communicate with those even in the midst of his own suffering as he was bearing in his body not only the physical agony of crucifixion and all that went with it, but bearing in his body that judgment that would have put you and me in hell for eternity. And what is he talking about? He says to John, you take care of my mother. He says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And he addresses his heavenly father. When we consider the suffering that he endured at the hands of sinners, we know from Isaiah that his, his face, his visage was marred more than any man's. His face hardly looked human as they had pulled off his whiskers, beaten him, put that crown of thorns on his head, and all the rest of the pre-crucifixion sufferings that he endured. He was found in the midst of sinners and willing, ready to forgive and to save. There he demonstrated in the midst of sinners the grace of God in reaching out to one who would call him Lord, one who would be saved, one who would embrace what Jesus was actually doing at the cross. And there he demonstrates his justice in upholding the law, not sweeping the law under the carpet and saying it doesn't really matter, it's not important anymore, we'll just forget about that, but in keeping the demands of the law on our behalf. And of course, so much more. We find Jesus in the midst of sinners at his crucifixion. We could go back just for a moment or two to chapter 8. And there we find a passage that some have found objectionable to the point where it has been uh, discarded from Scripture, not recognized as being God-breathed. Here we find Jesus speaking to a, a group of hypocrites and a woman who was taken in the very act of adultery. Very serious passage. In verse 3 it says, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act, and they weren't concerned about the woman nor her sin. What they were concerned about was trying to find a reason to criticize Jesus. And here Jesus is in the midst of sinners, and he's willing to pardon one who would receive that pardon. And what does he say to her in his midst? He said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't minimize her, her sinful behavior, but he pardoned her. He was willing to be in the midst of sinners in his death. And he was willing to pardon sinners during his earthly life in ministry because he knew he was going to the cross and would die for that woman's sin. John tells us and shows us that Jesus was willing to be in the midst of sinners. But he was also willing to be in the midst of saints in the second application of this. You might just turn with me to chapter 20. 
John chapter 20. And here we find the disciples, the followers of Jesus, and they're in a state of shock. The one that that they loved had just died. They had heard reports of his resurrection, but there was a measure of confusion and uncertainty in their lives. And in verse 26, it says, And after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Now just back up a little bit into the earlier part of this chapter. In verse 19, it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, Sunday, when the doors were shut, where the disciples where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, in the midst, and said unto them, Peace be unto you. What does Jesus say in the midst? Verse 21, the last part of the verse, says, Peace be unto you. Again, he's repeated that. What we find is peace in the midst among the saints. There's conviction and conversion among sinners, and there's peace amongst the saints. In this little passage, he spoke to them. While he was in their midst, he spoke to them, and he spoke peace. It was his desire for his peace to be in their hearts and in their midst. Verse 27, then saith he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger. Of course, Thomas had earlier said, if I don't see him and put my fingers in the nail prints and my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus now said to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing. And notice what Thomas's reaction was. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. That was not an outburst of exclamation. The Greek text makes that abundantly clear. That is a direct address. He's calling Jesus my Lord and my God. Where did he come to that realization? It was in the presence of Jesus. Well, John very wonderfully shows us the presence of Jesus among sinners and amongst the saints. But now in the passage we'd like to look at in particular in Revelation chapter 1, he shows us Jesus in the midst of the churches, the assemblies of God's people coming together to minister, to be ministered unto, to pray, to praise, to share, to worship in spirit and in truth. And I think this is really one of the most wonderful passages in all of the New Testament relative to the church. Verses 10 down through 20, we find Jesus in the midst of the churches. And what does he do? Well, he's not sitting idly on the sidelines. He's active. He's the focal point. He's the one who holds the churches and the leadership behind the churches. Verse 11 shows us 
the identification of Jesus, being in his presence should govern our conduct, our attitudes, our conversation, the content of our ministry, the subject matter that we talk about. It is so easy, folks, as we probably all know painfully, it's so easy to talk about everything except Jesus. It's possible to say many good things, maybe not appropriate things. How careful we need to be that in the presence of Jesus that we are indeed occupied with him, his person and his work, his program, and all that he is. Now in verse 11, it shows us his identity. He's called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And that's Jesus. We know that from chapter 22 and verse 16. The Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. The most important person in our lives, in our earthly journey. In verse 8, he is referred to as the Almighty. Now, the word that is translated Almighty comes from a Greek word that is the equivalent of the Hebrew El Shaddai. The Almighty, the one who is gentle, loving, self-giving. And it presents a word picture of one who's not just enormously powerful, but it presents the picture of a mother nursing her baby. He's the Almighty. Shows his identity. The Alpha and Omega, first and last, the Almighty, the one who is and which was. He's very conscious of what took place at Calvary and which is to come. Now, if we were really listening carefully and reading carefully, we would find that this identity of Jesus is exactly the same as what we read or read in chapter, in verse 4 of chapter 1. The same description of God the Father, demonstrating the commonality of essence between the persons of the Godhead. He's the one who evidently wants to be known, wants to be heard, to be seen as preeminent in the church and the churches, the fellowships of God's people. As the Almighty, he has the right to tell us what to do and when to do it and how to do it. He has the right to tell us how to conduct our lives, what we should be doing and what we should not be doing. Now keep in mind that it's Jesus who loves the church, who died for the church, who's promised to never leave nor forsake those who comprise the church. And he's the speaker, and we see that in verse 18. He says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. That's the identity of Jesus. He is the one who tasted death, and we know from Hebrews 2.9 that he did that for every man. Now, what I'd like you to, to do is focus with me on the fact that John responded to the voice of Jesus. Notice in verse 12, where it says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. He responded to the voice of Jesus, and where was his, uh, his attention drawn? To the seven churches of Asia. 
How important is the church, the fellowship of God's people to the Lord Jesus? When he spoke to John, the first thing that John was conscious of, having turned, was the church. The fellowship, the assembling of God's people coming together in local bodies. Verse 13 we have a description of Jesus. What an amazing description. Notice in verse 13 what he says. Well, look at verse 12 again. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, he saw Jesus in the seven churches. Were those seven churches all that they should be? Far from it. But he saw Jesus there. And they are referred to as golden candlesticks, not just little wax candles that are going to burn out and get snuffed out imminently, but golden candlesticks. In spite of all of their imperfections, they were seen by the Lord as golden. And John saw them in that way. Should we love the church, the fellowship of God's people? Absolutely. Should we be loyal to the local church? Yes, we should. And that's demonstrated for us with with graphic clarity. Now, he spells out the names of these churches, and it's really not a rosy picture. The church at Ephesus, when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, They were a church that were noted for their love for the Lord. But here, as Jesus gave this letter to the church at Ephesus, they had left their first love. They didn't lose it. They made a conscious decision to walk away from loving the Lord. They left their first love. Do you suppose people do that today? Do you suppose that all over the countryside there are people sitting in churches and maybe the churches themselves as a whole, have left their first love, and they've begun, they have begun to love so many other things, so many other activities, so many others of their pleasures that they have left their first love. Well, that's what the church at Ephesus did. But keep in mind, it's still a golden candlestick. Then there was the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church, And we find Jesus walking in their midst. He knew their suffering. He knew the death that some would endure. The grief, the sorrow, the opposition, the loss. He understood that. And he was there in their midst. Then there was the church at Pergamos, the church that was being infiltrated with false doctrine, perhaps unwittingly, But nevertheless, it was the infiltrated church, and yet Jesus was there. Then the church at Thyatira, and it's not very complimentary. It's the adulterous church, where they had begun to love other things other than the Lord. And the church at Sardis, it's an interesting church. It's a study in contradictions. It's a church that had a reputation for being alive. Maybe they had all kinds of bubbly music and all kinds of noise and clamor and 
and all of that kind of stuff. They had a reputation for being alive. Maybe they were the crowd that did the jumping up and down the aisles. And One guy said to me one time, they were doing the boogie-woogie in the aisles. Now, I'm not sure what that actually is, but I could guess. And Jesus says, you've got works. They were a busy church, full of programs, but Jesus said, you're dead. Lots of noise and commotion, lots of works, but Jesus said, it's the dead church, but he was still there. Then the church at Philadelphia, a pretty good church, church with an open door, with vision, perhaps with a burden for missions, for evangelism, and he was there as well in their midst. And then the church at Laodicea, that's not a very inviting place. Jesus said, you make me sick. You make me feel nauseated. The church, nevertheless. Lots of challenges. Those churches are likened to candlesticks. What do candlesticks do? They have one function. To give light. Long time ago, in the little village where we lived, there was no electricity. So we had a kerosene refrigerator. And it taught me a lot of lessons, a lot of sanctification lessons, if you can imagine. It was an exercise in patience. But it had a round wick. And that nasty round wick would every once in a while get a little piece of wick or a little piece of carbon and instead of having a nice round blue flame, it would have a little orange spike. And that little orange spike would begin to smell, and it would give a black smoke, subtly at first, but after a while it would make you nauseated. One of the things I did every other day was blow the wick out, slide the, the reservoir from underneath the fridge, and I would have to trim that wick. I had a little gadget that fitted on top of it, and it would cut off any little bits of carbon, any little bits of thread that would stick up. And then I could light it again, and it would burn with a nice, even blue flame. I've thought of that many times. As a church, we are to be a candlestick. We are to give light and maybe a measure of warmth, but primarily light. In the Old Testament, there was a candlestick, just one in the tabernacle, seven different branches. There are no mention of wicks, but we know there were wicks because there were wick trimmers. Those wicks needed to be trimmed. How careful you and I need to be that as part of a candlestick that we are burning with a nice even blue flame and there's no little bit sticking up that smokes that gives black smoke, that causes nausea, that is repulsive, makes you want to go away from it. You see, Jesus was in the midst, and he was here trimming the wicks. Why? So they would burn brightly, burn evenly, and give light and accomplish that purpose. John saw Jesus one like the Son of Man. In fact, that's a title that is used of Jesus more than 80 times in the Scriptures. 
It was the title Jesus used of himself more than any other. One like the Son of Man, one who looked like a human being, though without sin and the marring that sin brings. It is quite significant that John goes on to describe Jesus. He gives us ten descriptions. We won't look at all of this and, and keep you here until Christmas, but there are ten descriptions of Jesus given in this passage. You may notice that he's, his eyes are described as a flame of fire with penetrating vision, searching the hearts and lives, warming, purifying, discerning. His feet are described like fine brass burning in a, in a furnace, in a fire. Brass in Scripture is a symbol of hardness, definitiveness. It's a symbol that is associated with judgment. His feet were like fine brass burning in a furnace. He was there to bring and restore purity to the churches. His voice was as the sound of many waters, many waters. Think of the power of his voice calling creation into existence calling the earth to be, the sun, the moon, the stars to be and to give their light. To think of his voice calling Lazarus out of the grave, out of the tomb. He spoke the words, and it was so. John heard the voice of Jesus. He then describes Jesus holding the seven stars, the seven messengers, perhaps the pastors, the leadership, of the churches, and he's holding them in his hand, his right hand, that hand that is a symbol of acceptance. How thankful we can be that it is God who holds the leadership in his hands. And I think it is important that we recognize that, that they are under the government of God. God himself. And then he's describing Jesus as having a sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth, that sword that we mentioned earlier in Revelation 19 that will smite the nations and bring to death that great multinational force that will come against Jerusalem, against Israel. He's got that great sword, that word sword that protrudes and comes forth from his mouth. And then he describes his face, his countenance, shining like the sun. That face that was spit upon. That face that was marred more than any man's. Is that face that was seen now glorified in the midst of the churches. Could Jesus be in the midst of a church and not be seen? I think the answer is yes. Did the dead church perceive the presence of the Lord? I doubt it. Did the church at Ephesus that had left their first love sense his presence in their midst? It is so important for us to be in that heart level of submission that senses and recognizes and adores the presence of the Lord Jesus. 
one day we will be transformed into his likeness, that we will be like him as he is, not as he was, but as he is in his glorified state, in his glorified body. We too will have glorified bodies. What was John's reaction to all of this? Verse 17, he fell at the feet of Jesus as if he were dead. Folks, we do well never to forget what he has done for us. He has given his life for us. What have we given to him? In closing, let's sing together, I gave my life for thee.